today on Ag News Daily. It's not just our hog operation, but to the entire U.S. wine industry. It poses an existential threat. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily podcast. Delaney Howell here, joined today by our intern, Madison Honkamp. Madison, you got any big plans this weekend? You're going to be watching the Iowa State football game? I think I'll be going to the Iowa State uh, oh, game this good. weekend, but it's supposed to pour. So yes, it is. I might, I might just stay in my apartment under a blanket and turn it on. on Fox yeah, Sports I think that so. uh, that would be my choice. But yes, continued rain is in yeah. the forecast for so many parts of Central Iowa, especially, but I think across the U.S. So pushing that window back for folks to get into the fields. Yes, definitely. But I think, is next week supposed to clear up a little bit or is it it still supposed to rain? I I think it's supposed to clear up. I'm not going to be super warm from what the forecast says, (laughs) but you know, my opinion is meteorologists or weather people are usually wrong anyways. I don't understand the dynamics of how they say it's a 70% chance of rain or in my opinion, it should be 50-50. Like it's either going to rain or it's not. Mm -hmm. So I don't quite get that whole whole thing. I've never gotten it, but... Yeah, very true. It seems like they will say one thing and it'll do the opposite. So Yes. Well, one thing that we did not see the opposite on from what we were expecting was the biofuel slash renewable fuels announcement that came out this morning made by President Trump. That was a big win for the ethanol and biofuel, biodiesel industry. The new plan of action that the EPA and the USDA will take forth here is a couple of different pieces. Really what we were expecting to see, what rumors had said we were expecting to see. Essentially, this deal that was announced today would make oil refineries be required to blend at least 15 billion gallons of ethanol into the nation's fuel supply beginning next year in 2020, as well as seeking to expand the biofuel requirements beginning in 2020 upwards until they don't really give a timeline for how many years into the future they plan on expanding the biofuel requirements. But this is essentially to build on the year-round sales of E15 and to kind of make amends for some of those small refinery exemption waivers. What exactly it will do for the ethanol industry remains to be seen, so it might be a good time for us to get back on Robert White of the RFA to discuss this new announcement. Yes, Stephanie, I think that was probably the bigger news article for t- that came out today, Delaney. Um, but one thing that I kind of wanted to touch on, um, yesterday we obviously kind of talked about how Purdue is getting a lot of uh, backlash with the comments that he made at World Dairy Expo and it even took to Twitter yesterday I believe this was and former vice president and 2020 candidate Joe Biden stepped in and tweeted President Trump broke his promise to America's farmers he campaigned on having their backs and now his administration is abandoning them and claiming family farms might not survive and a lot of people have been pointing out that you know the about Obama administration wasn't quite steadfast in helping farmers. Um, 
quite as much as Trump has. But a USDA spokesperson, um, when asked for a further comment, did tweet that there is no doubt there has been some economic stress in the dairy industry, but we believe better days are ahead. Yeah, and to follow up on that too, Madison, there was a couple of quotes that I did not include when we were discussing this yesterday Mm -hmm. that were really the bread and butter of why folks were, dairy folks especially, were upset about this. One of the quotes was, quote, in America, the big get bigger and the small Mm -hmm. go out. And the other one was, quote, I don't think in America we, for any small business, we have a guaranteed income or guaranteed profitability, which, I mean, I don't know. I thought those two things made sense. It's not like he's saying anything nobody else already didn't know, but maybe it was just so much of the fact that he was announcing it at World Dairy Expo and dairy producers time and time again go through more economic stress, it seems like, than more sectors, most sectors of ag. So I think perhaps Mm -hmm. that's part of the reason behind some of the backlash here. Yeah, and I definitely think that would be it because he did say it at Dairy or at World Dairy Expo and I think they were hoping for more of a um, kind of pep talk from Secretary Perdue, like, like things will get better the economy will improve, you know, prices will go up. But he basically said, yep, nothing's really going to change in the small dairy farms are probably going to go out of business. Right. Yes, I think that was the reason that it made so many folks Mm -hmm. upset or unhappy. But since we're talking about Secretary Purdue, this is kind of some more fun, upbeat, Friday type of news. But (laughs) we've talked about this and I reached out to Secretary Purdue's press people. So hopefully we can have him on the podcast here sometime in the near future. But Secretary Purdue is releasing his own podcast. It's going to be called The Sunny Side of the Farm, which I love that spelled S-O-N-N-Y, of course after his nickname there. And he will be releasing it, I believe, one Friday, the first Friday of every month. So you can tune in to listen to that, the sunny side of the farm. And he is going to be focusing on interviewing folks all the way from Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is his first guest that was released today, President Bureau, Farm Bureau President Zippy Duvall, Farm Broadcaster Max Armstrong, and many others to discuss the issues facing America's farmers, ranchers, producers, and foresters. So he might be out traveling the country when he does the podcast, or he could be in his own comfy office there at USDA, but go ahead and tune in to that. I think it'll be interesting to see how that takes off. I thought that was really kind of a new and innovative thing that USDA is coming forth with. Yes, it definitely is, especially since podcasts are becoming so popular. And I really like that they included foresters because you don't really hear that, hear a lot of forestry being talked about within the industry and they are a huge part of the industry. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Madison, what else is jumping out for you for news today on today's Friday episode? Well, I do have one thing. Um, Beijing actually announced that it was exempting about 16 U.S. goods from retaliatory tariffs, and they're hoping to really get into the way permeate, the permeate, permeate. or way mm-hmm. permeate. That's how you say it. And I know the U.S. dairy companies and industry representatives are planning to host two seminars in 
in China this month to pitch Permeate as a way to rebuild their herds. I know I've talked about this before, but now they're really taking that next step to get these Chinese livestock producers to double the amount of the ingredient they use to improve piglets' growth and health. And because China has traditionally fed piglets about half as much Permeate during their lives as the U.S. and European hog producers, but hopefully we can see this kind of help them rebuild their herd and maybe even combat some of that African swine fever. Yes, and we're continuing some of our research, some of our digging on mm-hmm. the back end. We had Dr. Phil Tong on the podcast a couple of weeks ago to talk about that research. So it sounds like, Madison, you're reporting that they are setting up actual seminars to present yes. that research now to Chinese folks. Mm-hmm. So we're continuing our dig into that a little bit more to see what if anything, what does that mean for the Chinese swine industry? Yes, definitely. And I wonder, I was kind of thinking maybe this could even open up more like trade talks um, and more opportunities for our countries to work together. Absolutely. I think that is probably (laughs) their main goal is to keep that dialogue open. But it seems that dialogue has been kept open between the U.S. and Japan after we saw the announcement of the U.S.-Japanese trade agreement, or at least a partial agreement here. Next month, we see Japan's parliament convening. Actually, excuse me, pardon me, at the end of this month, we see their parliament convening to take up the new trade deal with the United States and discuss that, see if it will be passed by their parliament there. However, one piece of, I guess, news or one piece of the puzzle that hasn't been solved yet is the official language of the deal has not yet been made public through the U.S. Trade Representative's office, although they've said, of course, it will increase access to the Japanese market for U.S. wheat, pork, and beef. But I would think that they would have to release that language before the Japanese parliament takes that matter up by the end of this month. Yes, they definitely will. And I think that'll help kind of everything move along. (laughs) Absolutely. I sure do hope so. Madison, I think I am out of news for today. Do you have anything else our listeners should know about? Um, I think I am all out, Delaney. All right. Well, folks, we are going to get to an interesting conversation here with Heidi Vitito of JWV Pork out of Washington County, Iowa. This was something that I think Mike and I discussed on the podcast earlier this week, but wasn't really largely made public. And that was basically, I think, 11 or 13 different pork-producing states across the U.S. paired up with the USDA, their pork producers' councils statewide, and the USDA paired up to do a, you know, semi-national, national, excuse me, not all, all 50 states were involved, but a semi-national African swine fever simulation. So we're going to talk here in just a little bit with one of the producers that was involved with that simulation. So do stay tuned. Interesting conversation coming up here. But of course, we've got to take a look first at where our commodity markets ended for the day. All right. And taking a look here quickly through our commodity markets before we get to that great interview, kicking it off with the December corn contract, losing four cents on the day to end at 384 and three quarters. The March contract cut three and a half cents to end at 397 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, green on the screen after this week's bullish report, the November contract up four cents to close at 915 and three quarters. The January contract put on five cents for the day to close at 931 even. 
In the Chicago Wheat Pets, the December contract up a penny and three quarters to close at four ninety and a half, while the March put on a penny and a quarter to close at four ninety seven and a half. Looking over into the livestock pits today, red across the screen, except for in the live cattle markets where we see a little bit of spread here with the October contract closing up fifty five cents to end at one hundred seven thirty five. The December cut just five cents to close at one ten seventy seven and a half. In the Peter Cattle Pits, the October contract shed thirty-seven and a half cents today to close at one forty-one ninety-seven and a half. The November down seventy-two and a half cents to close at one forty-one thirty-seven. In the Lean Hog Pits, the weakness continues with the October contract shedding two cents on the day to close at sixty-two forty. The December losing eighty-five cents to close at sixty-seven twenty-five. And rounding out our markets with the Class Three. Milk futures October contract shed sixteen cents to close at eighteen thirty two. November down thirty three cents to close at eighteen oh four. And with that, let's kick it over to my conversation with Heidi Benito. Well, last week there was an interesting exercise that happened across a couple different states in the U.S. An African swine fever simulation. One of the producers involved with that simulation was Heidi Vedito, co-owner of JWV Pork down in Washington County, Iowa. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us today, and I want to kick it off here by asking your overall thoughts about African swine fever. We're in Porktober month here across the U.S. celebrating pork, all things pork. But what does the threat of African swine fever mean to you and your hog operation? Well, I think it's not just our hog operation, but to the entire U.S. swine industry, it poses a, a an existential threat. I think. I hope that the odds of it coming to the United States are low, but no matter how low they are, preparedness matters. And I think that avian influenza and PED gave us a good awareness of how we could be better prepared in the future for different challenges. And I really applaud the organizations that are working together to make us be better prepared against African swine fever. Yeah, it's a great thing that they have put together. Really, the simulation that they did. Walk us through your involvement in that. As I understand, it was a four-day event. What happened on each of those four days for you? Well, on the first day, we had been given symptom cards to call in and report symptoms in a given barn in a given location so that we could start the cascade of events that triggered the sending out of the USDA personnel and the IDALS personnel. And they came out, collected the samples, took them to, I believe to Des Moines or to Ames actually. And then Monday, that day of the week, that was about all we did that day. On Tuesday, most of the stuff was behind the scenes. So we were not involved in Tuesday. But then Wednesday was really the big day out here as a producer because that was about, so what are you going to do? What's your animal disposal plan? Because euthanizing sick animals timely and quickly is really key to containment of this disease. And then finally, on Thursday, we applied for movement permits, which we had previously had all of our sites put into the Emers Gateway, it actually is a USDA platform, so that if something has to happen that we were already appropriately prepared, 
with all of the addresses and the premises IDs and all of the background information that was necessary to quickly get permitted to move again. And what was your overall reaction to the simulation? Did it, I mean, it maybe didn't feel extremely real, but it did it put things in perspective for you as to the steps you had to take if this would happen? Well, it did a lot of things. One of the things was, yes, to your point, it made me aware of if this happens, then this needs to happen. We need to make a plan for this. So that part matters. But then again, you have to consider that most of the people who had agreed to participate in it, I'm sure, did so from a perspective of cooperation. So we talked about like indemnification for the animals because that's a key part of this. Although until we did the exercise, I had not heard a word about any program for indemnification. And that raises a huge question. And then how indemnity would be paid on this? That was that was all very enlightening about the exercise. But another enlightening thing was, what are the odds that if it comes, that it will just so happen to um, affect a, a highly engaged, highly cooperative operation? It could just as easily happen where the level of cooperation and goodwill toward the industry was not nearly as high. And so there's a lot of things that need to be firmed up about how should this best be handled that we had our eyes open to a little bit during the process of the exercise. I want to go back to your indemnification uh, process because that actually wasn't something that I really considered. Is there special insurance that you have to take out in case of African swine fever? Are you going to be covered if the event that you did get African swine fever tested positive, are you covered for that on your insurance plan or is there some sort of subsidy for that? Well, individual insurance is very unlikely to cover that. There have been a few um, players in the market who have come forward with policies if you got African swine fever. But for the most part, this is specifically about if your operation got African swine fever, how would that be? How would you be compensated via either your own insurance or by USDA or someone else? Then there's also the subject about preparedness. Let's say that ASF comes to the United States, but you aren't specifically affected by the disease. Obviously, you are affected anyway by the changes in the markets. So we should make sure that any conversation about indemnification for ASF relates to actual infection with the disease, not the spillover effects to the market. The USDA has some sort of a table that they update, I believe quarterly, that ascribes value to certain sizes of animals, of I think all classes of animals actually, in the event that indemnification or that, that animal mass depopulation was required the issue is, will you accept that? Because if you do not sign to accept that amount, then there is no indemnification. And obviously things need to happen quickly if and when that happens. But I think producers need to be very mindful of what are the ramifications to the marketplace if the borders to the U.S. were closed when you consider that we export around 30% of all of our productivity. Wow. That really puts it in perspective then, I think. So Heidi, with the dead pigs themselves, obviously you mentioned there that you'd be euthanizing those hogs, but 
there also could potentially be some sort of halt order or stop order in effect where people couldn't leave the state or come into the state. So what do you do with those dead pigs once they're euthanized? Well, there's two different subjects there. One is about proper animal disposal, which is very site dependent, depending on the the, um, natural resources in the area in which you operate. For example, if a farm has is in an area where there's a high water table, the right type of animal disposal would not be the right the same as in a in a different kind of terrain. And the the main goal with any of this is to keep any animal disposal as much as possible on the premises from which the disease started so that there isn't transportation risk and that there isn't downstream, no pun intended, there isn't later on in time exposure created in just another location. A 72-hour standstill is not just about crossing state lines, but that is about animals moving into and out of control zones. It starts out if there is a discovery of African swine fever in the United States, the 72-hour standstill is designed to stop animal movement to enable everybody to assess the situation and limit the magnification of a small problem into a big problem. It's estimated there's at least 2 million pigs on the road in any given day, which I find phenomenal. But when you start thinking about, well, that's feeder pigs moving, that's wiener pigs moving, that's market hogs, that's breeding stock, that's cull sows. So you can see how quickly, you know, especially for operations that are segmented that have perhaps their farrowing is in one location and then their nurseries or their finishers are in another, how important it is for people to have given this matter some thought ahead of time. How prepared am I if a a standstill order were issued how prepared am I to be able to stop operations for three days, including movement of feed? Right. That's the big one. The big question is the feed. How do you take care of that if you're getting it from out of the area, I think? Well, even if you're getting it from your own feed mill and it's in a control zone and there's the stop order, then that's something that people have to be prepared for. But I think that, you know, there are, things you can think about and then go, well, rationally, we could deal with that because if we needed to, we could shut the feed lines off. We could let them eat what is in the feed or in the feeders and then, then let the feeders be out and then come back in and manage to refill the feeders tomorrow, shut them back off so that animals didn't have continuous access to feed, but that nonetheless got their meals every day. But you know, to make it last longer with what your existing on-site inventory is. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. There's a lot of things to consider. Heidi, I think the last question I have for you personally is, since this African swine fever has developed here really over the last year, a couple years, or a year, a couple months later, what has changed on your operation as far as biosecurity goes or preparedness now for if African swine fever does hit the shores of the U.S.? Well, whether African swine fever hits the shores of the U.S. or not, about a year ago, we stepped up our biosecurity game at the individual farms, both the contract grower sites as well as our owned production. And we stepped up our our enforcement of needing to wear coveralls, disposable gloves, barn-specific boots, the use of a dip pan, none of which are difficult things 
but all of which require fidelity to doing them every day, every time you go in the barn. And the other simple but important thing is to make sure that your barns are secure because that that's one of the things that's so different about our way of doing the pork production business in the United States compared to China. So much of that rapid spread of the disease there has been due to backyard operations or animals having exposure to other animals in other herds. So we have a great thing going here in the United States. We have secure buildings with concrete walls generally, or at least concrete up to hip high. And so there's really no reason for there to be an opportunity for direct transmission to animal to animal in almost all of the United States swine herds. But none of that means anything if your doors aren't locked and animals could escape or someone could gain entry to your building. So any of those kind of things, simple though they are, need to be done faithfully and you know, look for breaches where you might be able to have rodent traffic in and out of a building. Again, it's just basic stuff that we should, we should always be doing all the time. But like anything, it's easy to get slack about it. So stepping up our biosecurity game has been our main, our main risk management, if you will, regardless whether African swine fever is here or not. And it's a good thing for the prevention of a lot of other type of diseases as well. But specifically, African swine fever is not an airborne disease based on what we know today. And unlike, for example, influenza, influenza blows in the air and it blows from the Eastern hemisphere to the, the Western hemisphere. So there are, are, you're kind of a sitting duck, no pun intended, about that type of a disease that can be aerosol transmitted. This is one that good hygiene and good barriers between the inside and the outside of your building, we believe, will provide the most effective form of protection. Well, Heidi, this has been very interesting. I think you've given our pork producing listeners something to think about here as they continue their operations. Thanks so much for sharing your insight today. Thanks for having me. Huge thanks to Heidi there for chatting with us about different things going on within the pork industry. But Delaney, how can our listeners keep up with different things going on in our on our podcast? Absolutely, Madison. They should definitely be subscribed to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page at Ag News Daily, as well as at Global Ag Network to keep up to date with the network news going on there. And a quick plug here, we folks are getting ready to launch a Global Ag Network newsletter where we will keep you abreast on the latest news, commodity markets, and latest information coming from the Global Ag Network. So do go to globalagnetwork.com. And sign up for our newsletter down at the bottom of that homepage. Madison, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.